I am Stephen Becker. I was a state district court trial judge in Reno County, Kansas for 26 years. Um, after my retirement from the bench, I served three terms in the Kansas legislature. I'm Beth White. I spent almost a decade working for parole services, helping people reintegrate into society. And we also have Sarah McKinnon again. Hi, I'm Sarah McKinnon. I've been a defense attorney for 31 years now. And this is Cleared. Beth, we have a special episode tonight. Very special. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited about it. Uh, yes, I, I was going to introduce Sarah myself. Uh, you met her, our listeners met her uh, on our last episode when she was covering for me. Um, I had surgery the day of the recording session. We told everybody you were as high as a kite that day, so they're, they're aware. All right. So... Yeah, uh, Sarah covered for me then, and uh, when I told her what our episode was about, uh, she certainly wanted to be part of it, or at least uh, be present for it. Um, So, that's one of the reasons this episode is special, is because Miss McKinnon is here. We have a second reason this episode is pretty special, and that is... Uh, that I have the opportunity to introduce um, Jim McCloskey um, to everyone. I'm familiar with uh, Jim uh, through his his, uh, book that he wrote. It's entitled, When All You Have Is the Truth. Um, Such a compelling title. Um, and I have uh, I have the book in front of me as I'm speaking, and I wish uh, you could all have a uh, be able to see it. It is coffee stained, dog eared, underlined, Post-marked. highlighted. Yes. <laughs> Post-it notes with page numbers on it. Um, it is. It is. And I think we've referenced it more than once on this podcast already. I have. uh, uh, Listeners that have been following us are familiar that I've dropped Jim's name a number of times and uh, referenced his book. And uh, here he is uh, on our podcast. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a big deal uh, for me. Um, The book was so compelling and the the wow factor when I reached the end and I closed the book, uh, the 
wow factor needle had had peaked out. But that's just me. Oh, wait a minute. It's not just me. Um, there's others. There's others that think oh, the yeah. same way. And uh, I'm going to drop names of a couple of heavy hitters um, that have a similar opinion of uh, Jim's work. How about Brian Stevenson? He is the uh, founder of the Equal Justice Institute in Montgomery, Alabama. He is the author of Just Mercy, which was made into a major motion picture. Um, and he is clearly a leader in um, criminal justice system as it relates to racial prejudice um, and other injustices. Mr. Stevenson says the following, Jim McCluskey and Centurion, we'll hear more about Centurion. Jim McCluskey and Centurion are pioneers in the struggle to expose the tragedy of innocent people wrongly convicted and sent to prison in America. No one has illuminated this problem more thoughtfully and persistently than Reverend McCluskey and his extraordinary team at Centurion. There are important stories we have yet to hear about what we've done in America, and no one is positioned better to tell them than Jim McCloskey. Those are the thoughts of Brian Stevenson. One more, um, I'll mention a name that most of you would be familiar with, and that's John Grisham, um, legal scholar, um, author of a number of best-selling uh, books in the, about the legal system. And he says, Exoneration takes an advocate who is tireless, fearless, and dedicated to justice, a man like Jim McCluskey, the dean of all innocence advocates the exonerator. <laughs> wow. Well, okay, so, yeah, that's... Um, well, that, let me just interject something here. <laughs> that's, um, that's, I mean, when I hear you quote those two men, that's almost a surreal feeling for me because um, I don't think I'm... You know, I'm not, I don't think that's just very high praise and it's flattering, but I'm not so sure I deserve that that level of of praise. But uh, I but disagree. I'll take, uh, but I'll but I'll I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I I know your comments just now and uh, the uh, telephone conversations we had leading up uh, to this episode recording. You are truly a humble individual. Just to put, and I, I don't want to take up so much time here, but just I need to put the matter into context. And I think um, Jim is the founder of Centurion Ministries. That is the first group in America devoted to overturning wrongful convictions. Many of us are familiar with Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, who founded the first Innocence Project. And now there are innocence projects throughout the country. But there's a distinction here. When 
Jim started, uh, and when Centurion started their work, um, DNA was not that uh, was not involved in innocence projects cases. They are almost all DNA cases, and some innocence projects will not accept non-DNA cases, which means that they find the truth through science. Science determines the truth. Jim and his uh, organization is different they do non-DNA cases. I'd, maybe Jim can address this later, but I think it's exclusively non-DNA cases. And that's, man, that's old school. That is boots on the ground. That's knuckles on the door. That's <laughs> decades of investigations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, finding witnesses and Talking to them about a statement they made 20 years earlier, that is old school finding the truth. And, uh, yeah, if you would think about that, the difference between those two organizations is what I wanted to po point out. Yes, science can find the truth when it's available. When it's not available, Mr. McCloskey can find it. Let me let me just amend amend <laughs> let me let me amend one part of that, Steve, and that is this: um, we have been fortunate enough over the last forty years to have free freed um, sixty six people, all of whom were serving life or death sentences for the crimes of others. Now, of those sixty six, I'm talking about empirical results. We have freed ten of the sixty six through DNA. It's not, that, it's, it's not that we ignore DNA. If, if we come across a good DNA case, we'll take it. But as you said and described, a great majority of our cases uh, require the um, the boots on the ground uh, kind of uh, field investigative work in order to uh, locate old witnesses, find new witnesses, assemble a forensic team whose expertise might aid us in the enterprise but but you're right steve most of our cases are are non-dna cases okay thank you so much beth i know you um you just you just finished the book you want to sh share any reaction well just real quickly because obviously we'd much rather hear you talk jim than me talk but i started reading it yesterday and i was done with it within maybe 12 hours and that's not to mention I have a full course load and six kids at home. That's how, oh, that's how, that's how good your book is. I, I mean, and to start off with, I just, I just, I can't thank you enough for the work that you've done, that you've devoted your life to. Um, it, it's amazing. That, well, thank you, Beth. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I really took from your book. Um, just the divine intervention in your life. And I, you even mentioned it at one point, like, how you had to go back and all the little tiny pieces that had to fall into place for you to get to the place where you were and how some would call that consequence, but not you. And um, another thing that just really stuck with me that I thought was very preemptive was that you found your purpose and you were led to it by a man named Chiefy. I mean, right. Yes. 
that's pretty awesome too. The chief took you to your purpose and that happened at 41 years old, which is probably telling where I'm at in my life that that's the thing that stuck with me. So thank you for your work. If nobody takes anything else from me, read this book. It is so, so good. Um, the honesty you tell, not just with the people that you were able to exonerate, but in your own personal life, it, it's amazing. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Beth. Yeah. Jim, um, Jim, why don't you share with our listeners your, your path and how it led to Centurion and then what Centurion has done and what it stands for? Well, uh, one of my favorite lines, as Beth was speaking, that comes to mind, one of my favorite lines in a movie was the, um, in, in the, the movie, The Natural. Uh, who, who was the, who was his old girlfriend in that movie? She's, um, oh, shoot, I forget her name. The actress. Anyway, what she said in that movie, I really identified with. She said that, um, uh, a lot of us live two lives. The first life is, pre is preparation for the second life. And I like, I like to think that uh, that certainly applied to me because in my first life, quote unquote, up until I was 37 years old, um, you know, in addition to growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a rather affluent family and, and we're going, marching off to, to Bucknell university. And then I became a, I enrolled in OCS, became a, uh, became a young Navy officer and was assigned to to Japan, which was my dream job. That's where I wanted to go. I was I was just captivated by the Japanese culture and the people before I got that assignment, which is what I asked for. Uh, and I spent a year and a half as a young Navy officer in Japan. And then I volunteered for Vietnam uh, for several reasons. First of all, in my naivete and in my I misplaced idealism i felt that we we belong there and that i wanted to do my part to help uh save uh, south vietnam from communism and the domino effect which was in vogue at that time as a justification for our participation in that war so i spent a year in vietnam as an advisor to the south vietnamese junk fleet we would patrol the rivers of the mekong delta and I was only one of two Americans, and I lived among the South Vietnamese, and, and we did our work. I did my work with them as an advisor. And I saw things over there that, uh, that when, I, when I left a year later, I, I left Vietnam in October of 1967, 67 now, and I wrote my parents a letter saying that our effort in Vietnam is going to be a total failure. Um, we're going to lose the war. The loss of American life and treasure is not, is, is, is of no value. Not a, is a, it, it, it's, a, it's a wasted loss of life and treasure. This is a debacle. It's a catastrophe. And we're going to lose because I saw what was going on uh, both within the uh, South Vietnamese forces, as well as the American forces. It wasn't working and it wasn't going to work. And that was the first time where I came across, uh, where I began to be aware of governmental misconduct um, and authorities' um, misconduct. Uh, my boss, an American commander, 
in, in they he would literally manufacture false situation reports uh, and send them all, all on up to Saigon, lying in those reports saying that we killed X X amount of uh, VC and uh, captured a number of enemy weapons when in fact we did no such thing, and it was careerism. It was to make them themselves look good to their superiors in Saigon, and then Saigon would pass it on to to uh, their leaders in Hawaii and Washington with even more exaggeration. So anyway, but when I came home uh, after three years of, in the service, and um, I, I treasure my life as a young Navy officer, I met a lot of people and I started to grow up as a, as a young adult and see things I never thought I would see. Um, and then I just, my dream was to become uh, an international businessman specializing in Japanese business affairs. So I went to Tokyo as a, uh, without a job. I couldn't find a good American corporation who would be willing to hire me and assign me to Tokyo. So I went over there on my own, cold, not knowing a soul, having a few names in my pocket. This was in 1968. And I got lucky and I was hired by a management consulting firm in Tokyo uh, a small company, a joint venture between a, an American and a Japanese man. And um, so I, I stayed in, in Japan for five years as a consultant, working with American firms and other Western firms, helping them to understand the Japanese market and uh, develop a strategy to enter, the, to enter the Japanese market. Then I came home and uh, uh, then I, was, I came home to Philadelphia. I was getting homesick. My career in Tokyo did not work out as, as I would have liked for reasons I won't bother going into now, although they're in the book, um, and uh, found employment with a, a large management consulting firm headquartered in Philadelphia, which is my hometown, called Hay Associates. And they hired me to, to uh, uh, market their consulting services to Japanese subsidiaries operating in America, and also to establish our consulting business in Tokyo. Um, I did that for five years, from 1974 to 1979. Um, but while working in that capacity, was it appeared to be, I mean, it was almost like a dream job. I mean, I, it was a great corporation. I I, I was able to report directly to the senior partner. I didn't have to go through corporate bureaucratic layers. I had a lot of independence and entrepreneurship to do my work without higher up interference. However, however, at the same time, now I'm in my 30s. Uh, I, I started for, I, and I can't explain it, but I started to lose my passion well, I, I guess, guess. I, I guess I was going to ask that too. When you had yeah. reached that point where you had got to everything that you had thought you had wanted, was there yeah. always something missing, or were you fulfilled? I mean, obviously, I've read the book. I know how things go, but were you ever at a point in that career where you were satisfied? Oh yes. Okay. The first couple, the, the first couple of years, uh, I, I, I thought I was in my dream job. This, this was, this was, this was just what I was looking for, um, and. Uh, However, uh, I started to become disillusioned 
with some of the things I saw going on in, in that business world and what we were doing. Um, I, I, I thought I saw some, you know, dehumanization going on. In other words, the most important thing is profits and the well, welfare and well-being of, of our people that took a backseat to profits. And I started, disillusionment said it. And at the, at the same time, this was happening in my secular world and within my secular being. Um, for the first time in my adult life, I went to church. I, I went to a Presbyterian church in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Now, I was raised in a Presbyterian church uh, from, grade, from grade school all the way up through high school. But tired of it. And as soon as I hit Bucknell, that was the last time uh, I stepped near a church for 14 years until I returned to Philadelphia and felt a longing, a spiritual need uh, to reconnect, to renew my boyhood faith that I really had as a young boy uh, being nurtured in the local Presbyterian church. Um, and I felt that was the spiritual part of life was missing from my life. At the same time, I was starting to become disenchanted with the business world. And, and also, um, it wasn't giving me a sense of purpose. I, I didn't feel that I was living an authentic, meaningful, purposeful life because I was helping no one except myself and the corporation. And I was comparing that to what I was learning, uh, listening to the sermons of, of my minister, and he inspired me to go back into the scriptures and read the gospels, and what I was learning and listening to the, it, it became, what, what 1978, 79, 78 really is when I, the scriptures became the most important part of my life. I, they were my meat and drink. I was real. This is the truth of the world as I understood it and today understand it. This was, and then I would listen to the words of Christ when he would speak about uh, when you were young, you walked where you would. And when you grow older, another will take you where perhaps you didn't want to go. That's John 21, when the resurrected Christ is speaking to Peter. And I felt Christ was speaking directly to me at that point. Um, and and the, the thing that really, so I was becoming disenchanted with my, with my secular life, with my own personal life as well. Um, my moral compass had, had gone askew, and I was behaving in a way that was certainly not pleasing to God and really not pleasing to myself um, uh, in, in, the, in the way I was leading my life in terms of personal activity. Um, and so uh, what really hit me when I'm struggling with, what do I do? I mean, if I leave the business world, what else, what else is there? Um, but then I started to think, well, wait a minute. I see Dick Streeter, my minister. He is touching the hearts and souls of so many parishioners. I'm not touching anybody's heart or soul. And he's certainly touching mine. I want to be, I want to, I want to bear fruit for others, not myself. And I saw a way to do that was to, through the model of Dick Streeter's uh, Presbyterian Church pastorate, 
I, I thought God was calling me to leave the business world and go become a church pastor as a vehicle for me to help others. Um, and the words that struck me were when, when Christ was speaking to his disciples, saying, um, whoever, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Those words struck at my heart. So it was time to lose my life in the, in the world and find a new life in the gospels and in Christ. And so uh, thinking that the Lord had called me to, to the church pastorate, I announced to my corporation, my boss, who was shocked when I told him, as was everybody who knew me, including my parents and siblings and friends, because I, I consulted with no one as I was struggling with this decision to leave the business, not just hey, but to leave the business world and go into the ministry and therefore go to Princeton Theological Seminary, which I did, in order to qualify as a, and get ordained as a church pastor. Um, so that's what I did. I sold my home uh, and uh, moved up to Princeton Seminary. This is now in, in uh, September of 1979 and entered what they call their Master Divinity Program at the seminary. It's a three-year program. And when you when you earn a Master Divinity, that's when you, um, you begin the first important step to qualify for ordination in the church pastorate. So that was a, and that, that might sound like a big decision, but to me, by the time I made that decision, I knew that this was what God had intended for me. I was on fire. Spiritually, I was on fire. And I couldn't wait to get to the seminary and begin my new second life. So you said 78 to 79. So did it take you like a year, would you say, for you to come to terms with that? Like you said, nobody in your life would have believed that's the path you would have took. How long did it take for you to believe that was the path you needed to take? Yeah, it it, it, it took, I would say, Beth, a, a good uh, year to two years. So I probably started, I started flirting with the notion probably in the early 78, and I made the decision. Uh, a year later, in the spring of 79, uh, my boss and I agreed when I announced. The first thing my boss said to me, Bill Dinsmore, great guy, senior partner in the uh, in this international consulting firm. When I walked into his office, I'll never forget it. I walked into his office. I said, Bill, uh, there's something I need to tell you. Uh, I've, I've decided to, uh, to leave the business world and go into the ministry. I'm going to Princeton Theological Seminary. His first words were, Jim, I didn't even know you went to church. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I mean, I, I still, I was leading two lives. I had one foot in the secular world and one foot in the spiritual, uh, religious world, if you will. And it was time for me. That was another thing. I'm tired of being two different people to different, to different worlds. I want to announce who I really am. This is my identity. This is what matters to me. This is what's real to me. And, uh, and, and uh, so I made the announcement. And my poor mother and father, you know, 
I made some other decisions, which I hope we'll get into at some point. And then they were just, you know, they were supportive. They were church going folk and uh, they were stunned and shocked. And, and uh, my mother told me, she said, Jim, and she turned out to be right. Although I didn't know at the time, you're not cut out for the, for the church pastor. There's, there's too much administration and handholding, and that's not you. <laughs> I said, "Oh, mom, you don't know what you're talking about. I, this is what this is what God's calling me to do." All right, we'll see. <laughs> mom, so anyway, no. yeah, oh yeah, mom, no. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So you know that started my uh, my new life. Now I had no idea at that time when I I. I my second year there, now we're in the fall of 1980, and we, uh, we MDiv students are required to do two, uh, two years of field education work. And, and if, if it's okay if I go into this part right now, you tell me. Absolutely. You stop me when you want to yeah. reject something or ask a question. Okay. But um, so my second year at the seminary, I, I decided, you know, I'm going to. I think I'll become a, we had a student chaplaincy program set up between the seminary and Trenton State Prison. Trenton State Prison being just about uh, 12 miles down the road from Princeton, although a whole different world. Um, and uh, so I became a student chaplain at Trenton State Prison as to fulfill part of my field education requirement. Now, I, I wore the collar and uh, my, my, my responsibilities were two afternoons a week. I would uh, I was assigned to the maximum security unit um, and assigned two cell blocks. So I would literally just go on each of the two cell blocks and go cell to cell. The men are in their cells. I'm standing right outside the cell. The only thing between the two of us are the, are the, the cell bars. And I would talk with them about whatever they my 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 mission was to be their friend to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about and it wasn't to convert them or evangelize it was simply to make their life a little better if they wanted to uh, to connect with a, a visitor and uh, one of the one of the men uh one so there were 20 men on each cell block one of the 40 men was this man chiefy uh, that's his nickname, Jorge de los Santos. He was a Puerto Rican man raised in the in the uh, harsh housing projects of Newark, New Jersey. At that time, this is the fall of 1980, he was in his sixth year of a life sentence for a, a Newark, New Jersey murder. It was a botched, a botched armed robbery of a used car dealer one evening where uh, whoever did it, shot the uh, the proprietor of the used car lot and, and killed him in the in an attempted robbery um and uh, anyway uh for some reason chiefy now chiefy was a he was at that point when i met him he was uh he was 28 when he got convicted he was like 33 34 years old and uh, he was a heroin addict for most of his life in newark and he was very open and honest with me about the life that he led while on the streets. He was married to a lovely woman. Her name was Elena. She happened to be a Native American, 100% Cherokee. And she was a hairdresser in Newark. And she loved him. And she was devoted to him. 
and she was a lovely looking and a lovely human being. Uh, and so uh, anyway, uh, all he would talk about, De Los Santos, Chiefy, either was either his wife, Elena, and how much he adored her, or the fact that he was an innocent man. He had nothing to do with, the, with this murder. He was wrongly convicted. He didn't do it. He had nothing to do with it. Well, at that point, now I'm 37, 38 years old. I'm no, I'm no young kid, but um, I had no experience whatsoever with any part of the criminal justice system. Never even uh, uh, was was Voldard as, as a possible jury member. Never been in a courthouse in my life, um, and I always believed that at that time that uh, that, that I held. I held prosecutors and police to a very high standard of integrity and probity. I believe that that was a, a noble job, and I really looked up to law enforcement officers as doing such important work for for the communities. Um, and surely, surely, they would never bring anyone to the bar of justice who wasn't uh, who wasn't guilty. Uh, so I had a strong presumption of of guilt. Um, and so, but anyway, now here this man is telling me that he's an innocent man. Not only did he say he was innocent, he said the, the Essex County Prosecutor's Office in Newark, New Jersey, and their detectives framed him. They purposely framed him. I said, come on, Chief. I, you, I don't believe that's, they don't. Yeah, why what, they, whatever. Why, why, why would they do that? You, you were a heroin addict. You were a junkie. Uh, you were a throw and nobody cared about you. He said, that's exactly why they did it, because I was an easy mark. The police could clear the murder. The prosecutors could get the conviction, and it made everybody look good. Another murder, another case and conviction solved. Um, so, um, well, and whenever, something, and, and, something yeah, else ahead. about this yes. that I've heard you talk about, too, yeah. when asked about um, yeah. him proclaiming his innocence and how yes. for you, people don't, there's not a whole bunch of people coming to you in that prison house saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And how miscommon or a common belief that is for people that's not involved in the system. And I just have to reiterate that with the little experience I have with parole, people don't come in and tell me they're innocent. I, I mean, in 10 years that I worked for parole, I can't even think of one person who told me they were innocent. They're very well, quick to point out their crimes and what they did. They may argue about the semantics of it or they yep. said I had this, but I didn't have this. But they're not telling people they're innocent. This is not he, something that's widespread. He was the only one of the 40 men on those two tiers. There was one other one, uh, again, another Puerto Rican who, unfortunately for him, could not speak English. But I could garner from what he was trying to tell me that he he claimed to be an innocent person as well. But, uh, but you're right, 30, 38 of the 40, uh, in fact, not only did they tell me they weren't innocent, a lot of them told me what they did do. Um, and uh, I was amazed that they would ab absolutely describe uh, their their crimes to me. And some of them were, were horrific. Um, but um, anyway, over time, now we're talking September, October, November, we're coming on Thanksgiving. And, and Chiefy was personable, gregarious had a great sense of humor. Uh, we really connected well. 
we became friends. And I had to be careful because I had 39 other men on those two tiers. And I had to do my best to visit with each one, if possible, for each, uh, during each afternoon. So I, I couldn't spend too much time with him. But what I did do, completely against the, the rules of the House, we were told, by the way, when we started the program, uh, the two students have under no circumstances are you to get involved in any way with personal matters or with their cases. If we learn that you have, you're fired, you're banned from the prison, and that's it. Well, thank God you uh, did. Yeah, and, and so I did, uh, I, because I couldn't talk to him as much as I wanted to each time, I, each afternoon, I, I allowed him to call me, collect at my home where I was living. Um, and uh, we talked a lot on the phone there, and we kept that a secret between the two of us. Um, but anyway, you know, the more he spoke and he told me about his conviction, he was convicted based on uh, uh, the testimony of two men. One was a Mr. Richard Delasante, who told the jury, told Chiefy's jury, that while he and he was in the jail cell or the same tier with Chiefy awaiting trial, Chiefy confessed this particular murder to him, and Delasante rattled off a lot of details about the crime, which made his testimony appear to be reliable and uh, and accurate. How could he? How could Delasante um, get this information if Chiefy didn't in fact confess it to him? The ironic thing is that Delasante, he's Italian. His name and De Los Santos' name in Spanish, they both mean of the same thing, of the saints. And neither neither of the two were saints, except except Chiefy was certainly not a killer or a violent man. He was a drug addict. Um, and then there was an eyewitness, Pat Pusillo, who Chiefy knew from the streets. They were both De Los Santos and Pusillo and Chiefy. They were all heroin addicts. They knew each other from the streets. In fact, Chiefy did uh, tell me that that he did rob Pat Pasillo at a at a at a at a drug house of eighty bucks. Um, so anyway, uh, I said to Chief, I said, "Look, uh, you, you got my interest. I'm, I'm I'm hearing you. I still have trouble. You might be innocent, but I I'm still having trouble buying the idea that the police and the prosecutors." put you away knowing you were innocent or believing you to be innocent and didn't care. So anyway, I got a hold of his trial transcripts, a couple thousand, 2,000 pages worth of material. And over the Thanksgiving holiday of 1980, I read those uh, those transcripts. I was just totally absorbed by them. I, I was in another world, and this was a fascinating world to me. Murder. Murder on the streets of Newark. Completely alien <laughs> to alien to me um and i loved it um so i read the transcripts and there was nothing in those transcripts that in any way contradicted what he had been telling me over the prior two or three months so i came back to the tier after thanksgiving and i could see he was very nervous knowing that i had read the transcripts and he said what'd you think i said well chief yeah you know they they bear out what you've told me he said uh, he said, uh, do you believe, let me ask, he said, you've asked me a million questions in the last three months. 
and I've answered every one of them. I said, he said, uh, let me ask you a question. Now he's turning the tables on me. And uh, I said, I gulped to myself and said, what? He said, do you believe I'm innocent? And I said, yeah, uh, well, yeah, I do believe you're innocent. Then he, he threw the, 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 the punch to me. He said, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> oh, said, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, I said, what do you mean, what am I going to do about it, Chiefy? <laughs> I don't, you know, he said, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to your nice, safe little seminary in Princeton and pray for me? Pray that somebody, that God will send somebody to, to rescue me and, and free me? Uh, I said, well, that's what I was thinking about doing. <laughs> so he said, uh, listen, I've been on my knees for six years waiting for somebody to come along. I believe that God has sent you to my jail cell to free me. There's nobody but you. You are God sent. You are an angel. God sent to me. And um, if you believe I'm innocent, you cannot leave me here without. You just can't. You can't leave me here. You can't forget me. If you don't help me, you'll regret it for the rest of. He went on and on and really challenged challenged me and challenged my faith. If you're a man of God, how can you just go back to your seminary and, and ultimately forget about me without helping? He's setting that, the, he's setting the hook, Jim. Oh well he he got me though. I mean <laughs> he, he got me good. And so he those that challenge to me, it was a prophetic challenge by him to me. Challenging me and my faith. Um and I went back to the seminary. And I thought about it. I had a couple of shots of bourbon, I might add. And uh, I prayed about it. Then I opened up the scriptures for some guidance, which I, I was, which I've done my entire life, basically. Um, and I've, I happened to come across, I, I love the Old Testament prophets. And I happened to come across randomly Isaiah chapter 59. And in chapter 59, the prophet Isaiah, 2,700 years ago, says, justice is far from us. We look for justice, but there is none. Truth has fallen from the public squares. Truth is lacking. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice, and he wondered that there was no one to intervene. Well, when I saw that word intervene, um, hello, hello I, Jim. <laughs> I felt God was 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 inspiring me, was appointing me to intervene on behalf of Chiefy, and so I made the decision uh, to uh, to do what I could to help him uh, move the ball forward, and uh, and I went back to to uh, his cell, the tier. Uh, a week later, Christmas is coming upon us of 1980. And uh, this time I couldn't wait to get to the tier. Um, so, because I wanted to see him and I wanted to tell him what I was going to do. I was, I was, again, I was on fire. I felt this was what God wanted me to do. This is, he's led me, God, God has led me to this cell. And now I have a, 
what I've been searching for my whole life, and that's a, a mission in life to uh, help transform somebody else's life, to touch their heart and soul. And this gave me a tremendous deep sense of purpose and authenticity and so and a sense of calling so i told chiefly that i was going to take a year off from school independent leave work full-time on his behalf and see if i could uh, see if i could help him help move the move the move the ball forward well and you, you did this all on faith too like you've mentioned you had no background in investigation or the criminal justice or any of that you just you knew this was that you God was talking to you. You needed to Absolutely. do this, and you'd figure it out when you on the way. Yeah, I mean, I had, which I had you did no very idea. well, by the way. I had, I had no idea what I was going to do, or how I was going to do it, or what I was going to do. I had no, I had no plan. I just knew, knew that this was what the Lord wanted me to do, and I was going to do it. And I felt that that Christ would would uh, provide the way and uh, you stepped off of point a having no <laughs> idea where point b was that's right that's right that's, now that's faith. don't forget that's now, i'm faith. 37 years i'm 37 years old i'm not a kid i've been around the world i know a little bit how the world works i worked as as a management uh, glenn coast was the actress in the natural who said that who yes. gave that line yes um and uh, I knew, I mean, I, I had uh, studied markets uh, and interviewed tons of people to put together a, a market strategy. Uh, you know, you interview uh, retailers, distributors, and users. Nobody gives you the absolute truth, but the, it's like putting, uh, putting the pieces of a puzzle together. That's what I did in business, and I applied that same technique to the investigation on Chiefy's case. It's common sense. It doesn't take a genius. Um, you just you just figure it out. Okay. De Los Santos, I mean, I'm sorry, De Los Santos and Pat Pasillo were the two star witnesses against Chiefy. All right. Where are they? What's their history? What's their background? And uh, one thing leads to another, and I eventually found both men. And they both told, admitted that they lied and why they lied. Uh, and I, I was able to get other information about them that corroborated their, basically their recantations, especially Delosante. It took a long time to get Delosante to talk to me. But as it turned out, he had offered another jailhouse confession against his own first cousin, Danny Delosante, and put him in prison for a murder. Now, whether Danny did it or not, I don't know. But I do know that Danny, if he did do it, he never confessed to, to his cousin, Richard Delasante. And Delasante was a career criminal. He was a career criminal who was a, 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 a decade-old informant for the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. Not, that, not I, that you would know that from his trial. No, I didn't, I didn't know that From Chiefy's trial, because he no. flat-out denied that in Chiefy's trial. That's right. That's right. The, yeah, he's a professional snitch. He's a professional snitch, but at trial, under direct examination by the trial prosecutor, have you ever testified in any other matter against the other any other person? No, I have not. Oh, why man. did you why did you come forward here? Because 
when Chiefy admitted to me what he did, I thought that was terrible what he did, and I thought it was my duty to to uh, come forward with that, which was all BS, of course. Well, he um, had he had a moral duty to <laughs> right, <laughs> to right. snitch on people like Chiefy. But you know, so what I did when I when I I uh, found out that uh, that he had testified, offered the same kind of testimony against his first cousin. So I visited Danny Delasante at Trenton State Prison. And uh, Danny, um, I liked Danny, uh, and we got along, and he knew what I was doing. And Danny was smart enough to know that if I was successful on behalf of Chiefy, then uh, by by developing evidence that Delasante lied at Chiefy's case, then that would help Danny in his post-conviction uh, efforts. And so he introduced me to his family. Danny introduced me to his family, his mother. Well, I went up to Newark and met Donnie Delasante. And as it turned out, now, Richard's wife and child were living with her. They were destitute. Richard's in jail up at the Bronx House of Corrections. But Richard is calling in to Donnie's home to speak with his wife and also with Dottie. And Dottie would record his conversations. And uh, so uh, Dottie, knowing that if she helped me, whatever I was able to develop with regard to Chiefy, it, it would, would help, help Danny. her and, yeah. and Danny. And so that was the beginning of a relationship that developed over the next two years. And it took a year took one year before Richard Delasante would agree to talk to me, but he finally did. And uh, uh, the ice was broken, and he gave me names and places and other other cases he had falsely testified and wh who, who his handler was at the S. County Prosecutor's Office. I was, I was getting a baptism. <laughs> I was Richard Delasante, this, this rat, was educating me as to how the real world how the real world works out there between informants and prosecutors well isn't it interesting too he's telling you this all about his handler and the prosecutor and all this and then you go to the prosecutor and his handler and it's like oh there's no such thing as a handler what are you talking about i have no right. idea what you're talking about and well, that you're the learning the facts thing, of it from the man sitting behind bars that i think exactly. that's interesting too you know and then uh, but i also it took a while, it took a good year before I started to really come around to believing. I know Ronnie Donahue. Ronnie Donahue was, was the uh, was the S. County prosecutor's uh, detective. He was the one who put this case together. But he worked with Kevin Kelly, who was the trial prosecutor. And uh, to show you how naive I was, I started the investigation in February of 1981. In, and I'm starting to pick up some information. Um, and I decided I'm going to call Kevin Kelly up, the trial prosecutor, and tell him what I've learned. And he's going to fix I've, it. He's going to be well, so compelled. Yeah, he's going to fix that, it. That, Beth, I, when I'm driving to his office in Tom's River, New Jersey, I'm, I'm fantasizing, well, maybe the trial prosecutor, Kevin Kelly, the man I'm going to be visiting with, this morning, maybe he can join me oh, to help free this man. Yeah, that would, of course. See, you so, were just, what, 30 years before your time with that idea. <laughs> so, so, you know, but again, it just demonstrates my 
I wasn't naive in terms of what goes on in the world, but I was naive in terms of what goes on in the criminal justice system. And um, yeah, Richard Delasante uh, really helped school me. I got a baptism under fire from him and others. And uh, so I visit Kevin Kelly, um, and I tell him why I believe Chief he's innocent. He pretends that he's interested. He calls up Ronnie Dunny right in front of me, who was a detective who, as it turned out, uh, framed uh, framed Chiefy by getting Delasante to lie with his jailhouse confession testimony, and had done it in other cases as well. Donahue did, um, but he calls. He said, "Ronnie, I got this. I got this priest here. I didn't tell him I was a priest." He said, I got this, I was wearing a collar. He said, I got this priest here, McCloskey, and he's telling me he thinks Chiefy, Chiefy was, is innocent. What do you think? And I couldn't hear what Donahue said, but Kevin thanked him and then hung up. He, he said, Ronnie told me to tell you the jury convicted him, forget about it. Uh, so that was my first of two conversations with Kevin. The second one came about a year later. And that's when he really got angry and hung up on me because by that time I had come to believe with good reason and good new evidence that Kevin Kelly knew exactly uh, that knew that his star witness for the prosecution was lying, Richard Delasante, and that Pat Pasillo, the eyewitness, was lying. And that um, uh, now, you know, one of Kevin Kelly's. Uh, he told the juries in his summation, he said, look, you've heard Pat Pasillo testify. You've heard Richard Delasante. Both men did not, that neither man knew each other. They're two complete strangers. And they're coming into this courtroom and giving you uh, incriminating evidence against the defendant, having no way to in any way collude or communicate with each other. Um, well, what I discovered was that Pat Pusillo and Richard Delasante went to the same grade school, were in the same grades. Were they in fifth grade <laughs> together? I mean, from fifth, they were in fifth grade together, and they were bosom buddies um, all the way up until through Chiefy's trial and later years. So when I told Kevin Kelly that, he literally said some. He swore at me. And said, I don't give a damn. He didn't use the word damn. He used something else. I don't give a <laughs> darn. If 10 people come in and admit to killing Mr. Thomas, the victim, uh, your, your guy's good for this. And then he hung up on me. The next time I saw Kevin Kelly was at the post-conviction hearing when we had the goods on him. Uh, because now I'd also had I got a great lawyer, Paul Castellero. Uh, he was a solo. He was working for a small law firm up in Hoboken, practicing criminal defense law. Paul is a former public defender, and I was introduced to his boss, who in turn asked Paul to to work on this particular case. And Paul did a fantastic job. He was so smart and dedicated and savvy, and I learned a lot from him as well, uh, as part of the whole baptism of uh, criminal criminal defense work and wrongful convictions. Anyway, uh, we got an evidentiary hearing in a federal in a federal district court. Uh, Paul was able to convince the federal district judge that this case had been exhausted in state courts. That was an open question. Um, and the judge agreed 
that was exhausted and decided to take the case. And so uh, a month or two before the scheduled post-conviction hearing, uh, Judge Lacey, Federal District Judge Lacey, gave Paul uh, a subpoena to go in and have complete access to the prosecutor's files. And uh, I didn't, I wasn't with him, uh, but Paul went in there and they turned over all the files. So he was there for a full afternoon going through Kevin Kelly's trial file and discovered a written document in Kevin Kelly's own handwriting, which said RDS, Richard Delasante, in habit of giving trial testimony. So he knew that when he, under direct examination, asked Richard Delasante, have you ever testified in any other matter before this? And when Richard Delasante said no, Kevin Kelly knew that Delasante was lying. Well, and how blatant is that? We just did a case, I think last week or the week before, where it's that same issue. It's the DA in his own writing, writing in the case file what he's going to do to fix the issue and just leaves it in the case file. Like there's, there, he has no fear of any kind of consequences that are going to come from it. Exactly. And, you know, I'm fond of saying, because it's true in all these cases of exoneration, if you gain access to either the police or the prosecutor's file, post-conviction, years after the conviction, there's gold in them, our hills. Yeah. And, you know, you got, you got to get the police file, too, because so often, not, not so often, but uh, on a number of occasions, the police, when they have exculpatory information, they don't turn that over to the prosecutor. Yeah. But a lot of times they do, and now it's in both files, the prosecutor's file and the police file. Yeah. Well, and then they don't even bother. I mean, you would think there has to be some sort of forethought before they hand this over to the defense that maybe, hey, we should go through it first. But no, I mean, they're still not concerned because they still don't think, I don't know, it's, it's crazy, it's broken. It's- I want to mention one thing, Jim. I would love to spend, I would love some, to spend some time talking about uh, this naivete um, because everyone, Jim, everyone has that. I mean, it's like an epidemic. Um, I talked, I talked to people about the podcast and what, what it's about and what I'm doing. And they said, Oh, I didn't know there was anybody in prison that wasn't guilty. Exactly. And, and listen, I, I think I put on my black robe, Jim, when I was age 33 and really, wow, that's and I was so naive and I can remember thinking, is this officer testifying lying? He wouldn't lie on a misdemeanor pot possession case. Oh my goodness. And it took me a long time to come to that awakening as you did, you know, and I'm, I was part of it. I was, uh, I was like, uh, I don't know, sustaining it, keeping it going because I was a part of it. And, um, yeah, that, that really, that really haunts me, Jim, that, uh, I had that, I was that naive about issues like this and when I was wearing a black robe. Well, we could, uh, this is maybe something that we want to get into uh, our next hour of, of podcast, uh, but perjury 
perjury among police officers, in my experience, working these cases across the country, is certainly not uncommon. It happens, I, I can't say all the time, it happens often. Jim, Jim, this is Sarah, and, and I've, I've been a, a criminal defense attorney for over 30 years now. It, it happens often, and it happens when it doesn't even need to happen. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, no, you would think that such a, well, first of all, it starts with, a, with, with when they make application for a search warrant, and what they say in that application affidavit, that's, it starts there. But, um, you know, and, and also, um, there's the, the, the to get along you have to go along and there's tremendous pressure within any police department to you know the japanese have a, have a great saying that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down <laughs> and so if you want to remain in good relationship with your boss with your peers and you're a police officer and you see things you see wrongdoing you actually see perjury, suppression of evidence, coherence of witnesses, whatever. You keep your mouth shut because if you if you start if you start um, notifying superiors that officer so and so did this and officer Y did that, then you're going to be an outcast, and nobody wants to be an outcast in life, and you're going to start getting harassed. You're going to lose uh, the promotional opportunity. Yeah, I was going to say, you're certainly not going to go very far either. You might even get demoted, assigned to a, a Siberia within the department. <laughs> and, and so you, you you basically keep your mouth shut, and it's one for all and all for one. On July 26, 1983, everything came together. Paul and I freed and exonerated Mr. De Los Santos. Judge Lacey ruled in his opinion that the prosecutor suborned perjury and that Delasante was a reprehensible character who was completely unreliable and a and a career snitch. Go figure. What a feeling that must have been, Jim. Oh, it was, you know, you talk about, you know, look. Uh, How long had you invested your life into this case? Well, this was, as it turns out, Steve, this was, as I look back on it, it was a short period of time from, from <laughs> when you, be, uh, I started the investigation, uh, you know, with my leave of absence from school in February of 1981, and we freed Chiefy two and a half years later in July of 83. With you going back to school, though, I think you should add and, that. And like I, you did I, that in addition to getting your master's. Right. So after I took that one year off. I came back to the seminar to finish my degree. I continued working on behalf of Chiefy. Um, and I would visit him every Wednesday night. He was got, he got moved up the rollway uh, to visit him every Wednesday night. And anyway, uh, yeah, it was a two and a half year effort. And we, Paul and I picked Chiefy up and we took him home to his wife, Elena. And um, I'll tell you, you know, that was the best moment up until that point. That was the best moment in my life because we knew he was innocent and we proved he was innocent. And more importantly, we freed him and brought him home 
I am. Oh my goodness. You, you explaining that Jim, I am so, so happy for you. Well, I think we should note too, at this time, this was not happening. It was not common for people to be exonerated. This was very uncommon for people to be exonerated. It was a, it was a rarity. Nobody practically heard of such a thing. And, um, uh, not only that, but I have to say that because people doubted, you know, people were nice to me, and but I knew that they thought that I was getting conned by the con. Yeah. And uh, I was on this wild goose chase, this Don Quixote venture. Um, they, they, but nobody told me that explicitly, but I could tell. That's what they felt. So not only was Chief Dale Santos vindicated, but I have to tell you, I felt vindicated. Oh, yes, uh, yes. And, and, and it was just tremendous joy and, and relief. And and so while I was working for Chiefy, to get back to your question, Steve, while I was working for Chiefy and visiting him, I he, he Chiefy, introduced me to three other uh, state inmates who he got to know, <laughs> who, who he believed were innocent, and who I eventually met and came to believe they were innocent. Well, and I was going to ask that night that Chiefy was freed, what did you go home and do? Go back to your room and do. (laughs) What I did was, first of all, (laughs) delivering Chiefy up to the McKinney housing projects into the arms of of Elena was was beautiful. And uh, I'll be honest with it out. So I go, what I did, I drove home at that time. Uh, the Centurion, well, Centurion wasn't for me, but I was living in a rent-free room in a very nice home uh, owned and occupied by an octogenarian, Mrs. Yateman. She, my bedroom was was my corporate headquarters, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, she allowed me to live there rent-free in exchange for me doing, uh, basically taking her shopping once a week at the local supermarket. Um Anyway, so I came home. We got home around, I don't know, eight, nine, nine o'clock, and I uh, was by myself, and I was feeling lonely because I was lonely. There was nobody to share this unbelievable moment with. And uh, I was even envious of Chiefy because he was home with his wife who loved him, and he loved her. Um, and so I broke out a bottle of bourbon, watched Johnny Carson. And uh, realized that, looked around, and there were the papers, the transcripts of the Nate Walker and Damaso Vega and <laughs> Renee Santana case. So I thought to myself, you know, I think God has more, more work for me to do. And so um, when, when I settled down and came back down to earth in the summer of 83, I had a choice to make. Uh, first, well, I had a choice to make. Am I going to? By the way, I returned to the seminary, earned my degree. Everything came together. Chiefy was freed. I graduated from the seminary, and but I had met these three other New Jersey lifers. It was in a sense I come to live. So my choice was another crossroads. Do I go on and get ordained and become a church pastor, or do I serve these other three men? As they said to me, will you do for me what you did for Chiefy? And so um, 
a couple things happened that enabled my decision. One, I was broke by that point, but mom and dad came into some extraordinary income, and they gave each of their three kids a $10,000 tax-free gift. I received it just at that moment, and I felt this was literally manna from heaven. And this was my seed money to start Centurion. Secondly, I had a dream when I was struggling. What am I going to do? My dream was, in the dream, I'm standing at a river, on a riverbank in South Vietnam in the Mekong Delta, which is where I was uh, when I was there. And I'm with somebody, I don't know who it was, and this boat comes chugging on by, filled with refugees, cleaning to the side of the boat. The boat sinks, and everybody apparently drowns. And I say to my friend, it's too bad. They're all drowning, and there's nothing we can do about it. When, in the dream, a helicopter comes by, drops some seals into the water, and they bring up these refugees and save them. And I felt that was another sign from God that I'm going to go into prisons and do what I can to help bring these three men out. Um, and so, I, again, uh, I, I felt that uh, my destiny, I now, at the age of 41, I, I now had my life destiny, my real calling from the Lord to go and set up an organization whose purpose was singular and very simple and straightforward, and that's to free innocent people in prison, starting off with these next three cases. So I set up Centurion in the fall of 83. I'm driving up to see Chief and Elena, and the thought came to me to call Centurion Ministries. Centurion, after the Centurion at the foot of the cross, who looked up at the crucified Christ, and said, surely this one was innocent. That's where the name came from. Wow. Plus, it was my ministry. I felt it was my my own individual ministry. Now, let me just say one thing, and then we'll wrap it up, and that is this. It matters not a whit to us if the people we serve were wrongly convicted, or those who work with us to free the innocent, if they have any religious inclination whatsoever, uh, or what religion they are, if they do, it's immaterial to us. Um, so it just, I called it ministries because, and that name is kind of stuck, uh, because it was uh, it was at that time, you know, it's still doing that I consider it to be my own ministry. So most of most of the Centurion Ministries people actually they. I mean, they mostly call it Centurion now, uh, but most of the staff members and the volunteers, uh, I have no idea if they have any religious inclination or not. It matters not a whit to me or anybody else. And this is the first organization, the first one, Jim, that saw the need in this particular issue. I mean, you're... You're at the head of the parade, man. The exonerator. No. <laughs> in, in 1988, I'm getting a little ahead of the game because this was 83 when I started Centurion, and nobody else was doing this work until Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld started up their Innocence Project in 1992. But in 1988, 
I was asked by the John Jay School of Criminal Justice to write an article about the work that at that time I was still alone, but the work that Centurion was doing, that I was doing, and what I thought uh, about why to, why doesn't people get wrongly convicted. In that article, which is a very long article, I clearly stated, and I have it in my files, that um, the, the phenomena of wrongly convicted people, innocent people in prison, is systematic throughout the criminal justice system in the United States. And it happens far more often than anybody and anyone who administers the criminal justice wants to believe. Absolutely. I said it, I said in that article, an innocent person in America's prison is about as rare as a pigeon in a park. Yep. And and that was in that was in the late eighties. So yeah, nothing has changed. That, that, and, and, and what you just addressed that is the purpose or yeah the purpose of this podcast the yeah the the reason <laughs> Beth Beth pounded me for nagged years for years much like your work how you spent years getting <laughs> the process going i also spent years getting this process going but the purpose the purpose of this podcast jim is to educate others that this phenomenon of wrongful convictions is just huge Why it's spread. it's huge yes well, and yes. it's not it's not a phenomenon it's a systematic it happens, as a matter of fact, on a daily basis all across this country. It's like a nope. systematic, nope. systemic yeah. pandemic. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a deeply, deeply flawed system in, in pretty much every aspect of it. Um, and uh, we'll get into that during our next conversation. Yeah, I was going to say that's a perfect segue. Why it is so systemic and uh, why so many innocent people end up in prison for crimes they had absolutely nothing to do with very serious crimes yep so um yeah well well uh, beth beth while we have jim on our hook uh what are we going to do with it <laughs> i don't i mean i could sit here all night and listen yeah. to jim talk honestly yeah. I, I hate cutting this at all um thank thank you so much for agreeing to be on uh, dad has talked about your book long before this podcast was even a reality. Uh, truly, I'm going to take a picture of the book. It's dog-eared. There's papers hanging out of it. There's coffee stains on it. I mean, it's it's well-loved. Um, well, I know I know that I'm in this podcast with, with Sarah and Beth and Steve. I'm preaching to the choir, but all of this will have a lot to add in our next hour when we talk about yes. how this happens and, and why it happens and and what we can do about it to hopefully diminish the, the, the number of incidents when it does happen. But no, you're right, Steve. Even, I mean, I can hardly pick up a newspaper and not read about a wrongful conviction. Yeah. It, it, it happens so often. Um, and yet the public, by and large, I don't, I don't know if they're all that interested. Now, let me say this, though, then, then I got to go. But let me say this. When I first started speaking to community groups, whether it be civic associations or churches or whatever the audience might be, um, in the 80s and in the 90s, and even in the 
you know, at the end of the 90s and in the 2000s. People were very skeptical that this happens. They couldn't believe it. I faced that, Jim. But 20 years later. I tell people what my podcast is about, and they say, really? Yeah. No. You know what? But I'll say this, that when I speak to audiences now, at least they're through osmosis somehow, they're not as resistant to the notion that America has tons of innocent people in prison. Uh, whether it's a, like today, I'm in a grocery store and I'm, I wore my jacket, Centurion Ministries. What? She says, what's Centurion Ministries? I said, well, we work to free innocent people in prison. Oh, that's great work. That happens to me a lot. People are more aware of it. It's not part of their life. Uh, but awareness is growing. There's no question about that. Thank you um, for that. Thank you for that. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to hear that, Jim. Yeah, no, I, I see that. I feel that when I have conversations with, with strangers. Uh, I wear, you know, when we free people, uh, we have T-shirts and long sleeve sweatshirts that say on the front, I didn't do it. <laughs> when they when they walk out when they walk out of prison they're wearing the centurion shirt that says i didn't do it yep and i wear that i wear that all around town and i get a lot of laughs people make comments but they start asking questions and um, the frequency with which people are accepting my statement that innocent we work to free innocent people that has becoming and has become much more noticeable than in the past wonderful wonderful um like we mentioned jim has so graciously agreed to come back in two weeks um two weeks we'll be recording so in three weeks it'll be aired and we're going to talk all about the problems and the failures of our system and what happens to these people that are wrongfully convicted um, right his book when truth is all you have by John, or excuse me, Jim McCloskey. Uh, please, please, please go out and read it. You can get it on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's available on Audible. However you want to read it or consume it, please do. It is so, so very much worth it. Um, thank you so much, Jim. Is there well, anywhere people you. can I... reach out to you or anything we can note? Centurion Ministries has a website that you can go and look at yeah, uh, stories of exonerations. Yeah, I would ask them to go if they if they're interested to go to the Centurion Ministries website, and uh, and that will lead them to where they might want to go within our organization. Where you can learn about the sixty six is that accurate exonerees? Sixty six. Sixty six exonerees. And those sixty six people, by the way, have collectively spent one thousand four hundred twenty eight years wow. falsely confined. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jim, Jim, uh, anyway, this this was really I really enjoyed talking to you guys, and and I appreciate you you taking the time to I know you were to read the book number one, and number two to prepare for this evening because it was a, it was a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening again. Um, Jim's book, When Truth Is All You Have, you can find it on Amazon, Kindle, Audible. Please read it. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concern, you can reach us at Cleared Pod on Facebook or Cleared Pod on Instagram. We'd really love to hear from you. Um, please rate and review on Apple or Spotify. That helps the podcast be seen. And until next time, we appreciate you. Thank you.
a Salt City Sound production.